This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey! Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 213th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a TV icon. He first shot to stardom in 1974 as one of the coolest characters in the history of the medium, The Fonz, on ABC's Happy Days. 44 years and five Emmy nominations later, at the age of 72, he's still going strong, receiving some of the best reviews of his career for his work as Gene Cousineau, a hard-ass acting teacher in the Valley, on Bill Hader's terrific new HBO dramedy, Barry. I'm talking about the man, the myth, and the legend, Henry Winkler. But first, I was joined at the London Hotel in New York by The Hollywood Reporter's chief theater critic, a man who is just entering his busiest period of the year, my friend and colleague, David Rooney. David, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Happy to be here, Scott, but really just entering. I feel like I'm... He's been in it for a while. ...deep into it by now. <laughs> Everyone, it seems... I, I've just touched down here 24 hours ago, so I'm, I'm still getting a little bit of a lay of the land, but it seems like just from even L.A., everyone seems to be talking about two two-part shows, actually, in particular, Angels in America, which is a revival, of course, and Harry Potter, which is new to town here, would you agree that these are sort of two of the most outstanding shows of the season? For sure. I mean, Angels in America is a major revival. And in a season that, to be honest, hasn't been particularly strong for new work, neither on the musical nor the play front, the revivals have been what has kind of elevated things, but particularly in the spring. There hasn't been a lot. I don't think a lot of the fall shows are going to hold over into the Tony season, maybe two or three, which I'll mention later. But sure. the revivals that have just opened on the play side is Angels in America, the fantastic Tony Kushner work, which was so prescient in the way it examined America at that time and things that are still extremely relevant now, perhaps more so than ever, mm-hmm. in a beautiful production led by Andrew Garfield, Nathan Lane. And then a quite stunning revival of Edward Albee's Three Tall Women with Glenda Jackson in peak form, first time on Broadway in 30 years. And this is absolute acting royalty. I think if you want to put money on one sure thing at the Tonys, it's Glenda Jackson, the best actress in a play. And I believe the third likely nominee for best revival of a play is just kind of arriving, but that would be The Iceman Cometh with Denzel Washington. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, there are two... Two big classic revivals coming in the next week, and that's The Iceman Cometh, directed by George C. Wolfe, who is a a director with a fabulous track record, and St. Joan, George Bernard Shaw play with Condola Rashad. And, you know, maybe in another 
in another Twilight Zone. <laughs> Condola Rashad would be some competition for right. Glenda Jackson, but I think she'd practically have to self-immolate on stage <laughs> to get that award away. You know, Glenda Jackson's been nominated four times. Every single time she's been on Broadway, she's never won which might make you think it's a career award, but it's not. What she's doing on stage for a woman of any age, for a person of any age, is absolutely ferocious. And it's just acting uh, as good as it gets. Olivier, I think, for King Lear, right? I don't think she won. She was nominated, no. but she didn't win. Billy Piper, who's also in town at the moment doing Yerma, won. It was a surprise win. Well, what about Harry Potter? It's one of a group of Hollywood blockbusters that have been adapted into shows that are here right now. The others include... Frozen, SpongeBob, SquarePants, Mean Girls. This is not the Broadway of 50 years ago. What is this all about? Yeah, it's not your grandmother's yeah. Broadway. <laughs> well, there's a lot of it, and there's good and bad with it. I got to say, SpongeBob SquarePants was a total surprise for everybody. We all went along groaning, thinking, yeah, more kind of kindergarten time right. on Broadway. But it's a weird Dadaist kind of show. Tina Landau, who directed it, has been very creative in the way she's put that together. And okay, the score is by a number of different people from the pop world. There's there's not what I would call a lot of cohesion to the score, but it kind of doesn't matter. And there's there's a, a really anarchic spirit to that show that is quite infectious. It's a lot of fun. And Mean Girls, you know, people who love the movie are going to love the show. It, it, it has a lot of energy. I don't think either of them are really advancing the craft of the musical in any way. So in terms of new musicals, there's not a lot of competition this year for The Band's Visit, yes. which opened in the fall and, and is that, yeah. quite, quite a wonderful show. So because it is such a thin field, could these get in there for Best Musical? Yeah, As, yeah. I think definitely. I can see a, an easy scenario where SpongeBob and Mean Girls would get nominated. I don't think either of them have a great shot at winning but you know even the guy Ethan Slater I think his name is who's playing Spongebob it's a really interesting performance it's very physical he's like a human cartoon and it's not just a jokey throwaway performance I think he's put a lot of work into it so I can see a scenario where he might get a nomination and I don't see any of those shows in the winner's circle necessarily but you know, they, they don't really measure up to the artistry of something like The Band's Visit, which is very delicate, it's small. And in the same way that the Oscars have tended in, in recent years to move away from the big right. blockbuster and look at smaller, more personal films right. for their top prizes, the Tonys also have done it with shows like Fun Home and Once. And so, you know, you might get a big, splashy spectacle winning in a given year at the Tonys, but quite often lately there's been a tendency to reward smaller, more artistically adventurous shows. And I think that the band's visit really fits into that category. Well, I want to ask you more about that because it follows a number of years now in which there was a huge off-Broadway sensation that then a year later came to Broadway and was comparably successful. We had Fun Home, three seasons ago, then two seasons ago was Hamilton, and last season, Dear Evan Hansen. So last season seemed like the band's visit was the big off-Broadway success story, and now here it is. I've found that people are actually fairly divided on it. There are a lot of people that love it, as, as it sounds like you do. But can you maybe explain why it is a little polarizing? I think because it's such a it's such a minor key show, and a lot of people still have this idea that Broadway is for big robust entertainment that leaves you kind of humming the tunes and feeling super satisfied. The Band's Visit is a very delicate show. It's it's this 
people coming together. Even there's a there's a little note on the screen at the beginning of the show that says, you know, this is the story of people who met one night in the middle of the Israeli desert, and you probably didn't hear about it because it wasn't very important. <laughs> That's right. It's yeah. a very very self-deprecating way to begin a musical and the show is very much in that spirit and yet if you go with it if you let it kind of soak you know if you let it wash over you it is really quite a wonderful transporting experience and the two lead performances Katrina Lank and the wonderful Tony Shalhoub are just phenomenal I think Katrina Lank has a very good shot at at winning that's what I'm hearing and I I saw her she was great where do we know her from before she was in a show last season called Indecent and she's done a little film and television she turned up weirdly in a in Tony Shalhoub's Amazon show, The Marvelous no. Mrs. Maisel, she turned she up met? in a tiny role as the fortune teller. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Well, unfortunately, by the time I caught up with Ben's visit, it was no longer Tony Shalhoub. And I just wondered, do you think something like that, because I think he left the show February 28th or something, probably to return to Mrs. Maisel. He actually left to shoot season two. Yeah, season two. But interestingly... He's back pretty much every weekend in May. And oh, all really? The Tony voters are invited back. Okay, to see I'm him. glad because I would like, like to see him do it. I saw his replacement, and you know, the guy was very good. But I, I want to see Tony Schlub in that. Hey, Tony Schlub is a very special actor, yeah. and I think this is a great role for him. Yes, and he's very prolific, right? I mean, we I think Act One was maybe two or three years ago. Yeah, and then he did The Price, the Arthur Miller play. Yeah. He works a lot on stage. Yeah. He's a he's a real stage stage animal and and pretty great. I mean, I think in terms of best actor in a musical, the front runners would definitely be Tony Shalhoub and Joshua Henry, who just yes. blows the roof off Carousel in Carousel. last night. Yeah. But again, a very polarizing show. It's a, a, a lot of people in the Broadway community have very strong feelings about those classic musicals. And if you go on the chat sites, there's absolute vitriol about it. Because they've what? Mixed it I up think people with- have very personal feelings about how it should, should and shouldn't be yeah. done. Some people don't like all of the cast. Some people don't like the design. Right. But the reviews were generally pretty positive. Two hours and 45 minutes. That's quite a run Yeah, time. but it kind of flies by. You yeah. know, those songs and the dancing is, is amazing. Justin Peck from New York City Ballet is making a, a pretty spectacular musical theater debut yeah. as a Broadway choreographer. And, you know, that's a show that has a strong history of dance. It was originally choreographed by Agnes DeMille. And I think... That by all reports, you know, Justin Peck has pushed the dance elements right. more than ever before. Like so, twenty-minute dance sequence or something. It's like an American no, they're Paris? not twenty minutes, no. but the, but but they're substantial and it feels like a ballet yeah. at times. But it all at the same time feels very fully integrated. It's an amazing production, and you know, I, I'm seeing My Fair Lady tonight. Okay, I was going to ask you because these are the two sort of classic Broadway musicals that are being revived this season and I guess the other both huge productions with massive orchestras yes much bigger than the you know now we're down to kind of in these days of musicians costing too right. much we're down to the 12 person orchestra in a lot of shows so these are bigger than to that. have you know a 28 36 piece orchestra which these two shows have I, I'm not sure those are the exact numbers yeah, yeah. but but you know that's it's pretty wonderful to hear those scores played like that, and and as far as Carousel goes, yeah. just sung magnificently. Yeah. I mean the singing in that show is is really. I'm excited. I'm seeing it tonight, and I love Jesse Mueller from everything else. But I understand she's actually not as much the lead as she's been in those other two, Beautiful and Waitress. She was in everything, every scene. She's 
more of an ensemble member of the ensemble here would you say she's a no she's i mean you know she's a major character she's she's a co-lead but at the same time it's a performance you have to listen and look hard at you know but it's there she's doing the character work and i think she what she does with with joshua henry is really quite interesting in terms of making you understand the show at a different in a different way and it's a very problematic show for audiences today you know in the kind of me too yeah. times up era it is a very difficult show for a lot of people as will be probably my fair lady when you stop and think about it. i mean this guy puppeteering a impoverished woman yeah but, but you know we can tweak around with these shows all yeah. we want but really they're they're in the canon. They're classics. They're period pieces. Are we going to go and rewrite everything? I'm with I mean, you. Is, I, are we going to do Streetcar Named Desire where Stanley lets <laughs> Blanche take all the time in the world in the bathtub and then, and, and then pours her a drink? I don't I don't think so. Well, so My Fair Lady and Carousel, it, it seems like their likeliest competition for Best Revival of a Musical would be Once on this Island. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that is one of the other of the few fall shows that will carry over and have some impact at the Tonys. Beautiful little revival of a show that is absolutely cherished by most people in the Broadway community. And Michael Arden didn't just do a standard revival. He really rethought it. And it's very immersive, sort of an environmental production. It calls to mind disasters in in Haiti and Puerto Rico. It seems to take place in the wake of a hurricane. And it's beautifully performed. And it's, it's really a, a terrific production. It will be interesting whether people go for something yeah. like that, that is quirky and more personal than the big blockbuster revivals, My Fair Lady and Carousel. The leads of My Fair Lady are not household people, right? I mean, who's playing? Well, Mar- Lauren Ambrose, for those of us who, lo- who yeah, love Six theater, Feet right, Under. Right, 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 right. Know, six Feet Under yeah. was a, a milestone <laughs> show for me. But also, I mean, Henry Higgins, this is a part that people have won Oscars and Tonys for. And who is The it? Downton Abbey fans know him as Bertie, the, <laughs> the one who finally gave Lady Eve yes. some joy. Uh, uh, but, you know, Diana Rigg as, as Henry Higgins' mother, is, is that's pretty that's deluxe cool. casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Alan Cordina is a wonderful actor playing Colonel Pickering. Um, a lot of people know from the Mike Lee films like Tops- right, Topsy right, Turvy. Right. But, yeah, it's not a big, splashy cast that's for sure norbert leo butts is maybe the big broadway name who's playing alfred b doolittle also recently of bloodline yeah (laughs) yeah and has two tonys already and wasn't his his wife is also a ton who's his wife again i think rebecca luker oh yeah i might be mixing him up with someone else. well that's all right we'll find it hard to keep all those (laughs) the relationships (laughs) speaking of people who are involved with incestuous broadway relationships i want to bring up a performance from earlier in the year that I really liked a lot. I don't remember how you felt about it, but I thought Stephen Pasquale was great in Junk, which was at Lincoln Center, sort of a theatrical companion piece to Wall Street or something, Where except here we're looking at, I mean, really perfect show for the Trump era. Yeah, uh, I don't know why that show did not resonate for me. Did and, it? Yeah. and I think for a lot of people. Yeah. I suspect that because the new play category this year is a pretty thin field Mm -hmm. it might make it in there because it certainly merits a spot it's an intelligent work it's it's well put together there's a lot of ambition in in it and it is head and shoulders above embarrassments like meteor shower or the parisian woman which you hated the parisian woman i yeah that's another trump era but you know what it was weird i didn't hate it with the intensity of patty lupone (laughs) who uh 
apparently tore Uma Thurman to shreds in, in London this week. Really? Hollywood actors should not be on Broadway stages. Uh, that's, I mean, I, I've seen a lot worse than that. That was just to contextualize for anyone who's listening. What was weird to me about it was it's Bo Willeman, right? It's his play. Yeah. Who, the guy who is behind House of Cards. He's got a conniving couple at the center of it. Actually, the guy who's looking to have an extramarital relationship with the couple looked to me just like Kevin Spacey. I can't remember what his name is, the actor, but Martin Sulkis, I think. Right. But do you see what I'm saying about the resemblance there? And then you've got your ice cold blonde is not Robin Wright this time. She certainly is not Robin Wright. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. Uma Thurman. I've seen some bad performances on stage. I've seen Scary Spy says Mimi in Rent. (laughs) But you hated it. You hated this one. Uma Thurman, I thought, did not know what she was doing up there. She looked completely out of her depth. All right. Well, I didn't I didn't hate it, but I hear what you're saying. Okay. What else from earlier this year? Anything that we should be talking about? I saw Marvin's Room. I think that was pretty uh, yeah. non-notable. I doubt that will uh, have an impact. It's interesting that the Tony committee met yesterday and rescinded an earlier decision to exclude the play adaptation of 1984. Right. Uh, that's now back in. And I wonder if there's some politicking going oh, on there yeah. because it is such a thin field and they don't want to find themselves with not with enough the- <laughs> worthy plays to nominate. By the way, you know... Parisian Woman, Meteor Shower. There were things I enjoyed about both those right. productions. I just don't think the playwriting is at a level to be Tony nominated. I am going to guess Whereas, that. Whereas, you know, if Junk were in there, I think it's a worthy candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think 1984, it's certainly an interesting adaptation right. of, of that book. The other one from the fall that might resonate somehow is Farinelli and the King. Mm-hmm. Again, I thought not a particularly great play, but it, Mark you know, Rylance. Mark Rylance yeah. is always good. There would be no surprise if he got in there. And for featured but, actors. But before we get off yeah. play, you mentioned before, and I completely glossed over it in my usual bulldozer fashion, <laughs> but Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. It's interesting that a lot of people would have written that off as a theme park ride on Broadway. But by all accounts, the people who've seen it and loved it in London, it's a it's a legitimate theatrical work. It's quite exciting. I'm seeing it tomorrow in a marathon. People who I've talked to think it's going to win Best Play. Yeah, I think it doesn't have a lot of competition, to be yeah. honest. You know, there are genuine theater forces behind it, too. You know, Jack Thorne, who wrote it, is a, is a terrific writer. John Tiffany, who's directed it, who has won a Tony already for once, is a, is a fantastic director. I hear the theater craft is very inventive. The magic on stage works very well. Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of psyched for that. Yeah. Not to put on our Grim Reaper mask too early, but what is going to be the first show that closes when it doesn't get major nominations? Children of a Lesser God. Yeah? How about a You know, from notice Margarita I said that, struggling to stay awake. <laughs> uh, what about, I know Escape from Margaritaville may be in trouble as well. I get the feeling there are some deep pockets behind that mm-hmm. show. And I don't think they're going to do much at the Tonys. The leads are fine. The show is, it's not root canal uh but it's no parisian woman <laughs> I, I i have to confess i have never the only jimmy buffett song i've ever heard in my life was was come monday and yeah. there was about two bars of it in the show i had never even heard the margaritaville song really okay. which is why i recused myself and sent someone else to review it but i also think that's that's straight man's music I, I, i'm a straight man i've never listened to any jimmy buffett music i don't know well People seem to be liking it that are going to see it, although they're not in huge numbers. But I, I kind of wonder if they might hang in there till the summer and see if they can get the tourists along. Because that's really where it's going to probably have its longest life, at these various Jimmy Buffett establishments. Yeah, but I also think, I mean, I'm second-guessing someone else's 
decisions here, but I think cynically the producers probably knew this was never going to be a huge show for New York and it's really a branding step. It allows them to take it on tour, take it to Jimmy Buffett Resorts and brand it, you know, direct from Broadway. Well, there's definitely some interesting characters associated with shows who have been around town this year. Jimmy Buffett was pretty visible with that one. Tina Fey with Mean Girls has been out there helping to raise the profile. J.K. Rowling with Harry Potter, of course. In a year without much excitement happening on stage, it's at least there's some colorful promotion, I guess. But final point before we end this, I got to ask you, they've got to come up with some kind of a special Tony for Bruce Springsteen, right? This is the show that everybody, I just, we had, we just recorded an episode of this with Samantha B. She couldn't stop raving about everywhere you go. A, it's sort of the, the social bragging thing this season that you've seen Springsteen on Broadway, but it actually is really great. Even for people like me who had never seen Springsteen live before and not we're not particularly into the music. There's something unbelievable about this, right? Are they going to acknowledge it in some way? I think it's inevitable. Yeah. He's got to get some kind of special Tony. I mean, he's obviously having a good time, yeah. too, because he's extended he's yeah. over and over again. It's now going to be, I think he's back after the hiatus now, and he's running through till June or July. I think it is inevitable that he'll get some kind of honorary Tony. And it's amazing. It's not just that he's brought $2.5 million to Broadway every mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. It's that... He has come in and rethought his whole concert mode in a more theatrical vein. I think the show is very personal. There's a real sense that he is communicating with the audience. I suspect it's been revelatory for him to do this in in a small house, a fraction of the size of the venues he's usually playing. And he's done small acoustic tours before. But I think there's something quite wonderful about this. And, And also it takes the best elements of the book of his book, yeah. Born to Run, his his uh, autobiography, which I thought got a little windy and long in places. I mean, it, it's a pretty wonderful book in a lot of ways. But when he gets deep into sort of therapy and, and this and that, and the, you know, I found it got a little bit self-indulgent. They tightened it up for, for Broadway. He took the best parts, you yeah. know. He took the parts that meant the most to him in his life. And I think he... There's something about the way he almost demotes himself on stage from being sort of superstar rocker Bruce Springsteen right. to being ordinary working class guy from New Jersey. And it's a, his story is on that level is very relatable. And yeah, I, I had a great time at that yeah, show. I too. thought it was just terrific. I love that he says this is the first time he's ever had a multiple times a week job in his life. Yeah. And, he, and I, I really assumed that actually for that reason, he wouldn't never want to extend beyond the initial run but it's, it's true it's amazing. it's gonna end up being something like probably what nine ten months yeah i think it started in october maybe so october through july it's a good chunk of the year wow and it's just him out there and and, and his wife occasionally yeah but. i mean i imagine they must be making a packet off that show yeah. because if it's making two and a half million a week yeah and the the overheads on the show are very low yeah. it's a low small crew good luck to them i mean i think it's been Fantastic for that theater chain to have that that show in there. Totally. And it's Jamson. Yes. And, you know, if for no other reason, if you give him the special Tony, I guess you get him to perform on the broadcast, which would be very nice for CBS. So. Yeah. I think that's that's a given. I, I can. I, the only reason he wouldn't be on there, I think, is if he doesn't want to go. Right. There's no way they won't invite him. Yeah. But, you know, I do wonder how much 
it would be nice to think that show has a kind of overspill effect and people are being exposed to Broadway and thinking, oh, maybe we'll go see another show. Right. Uh, or they I, look I, at the ticket price and they realize they can't go to that, so they'll go to something else. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. But, you know, but the receptionist at, the, at my chiropractor, yeah? just to get really tedious about <laughs> it, uh, her husband is a big Springsteen fan. She signed up for the verified fan ticketing program where yeah. you, you have to you have to verify. Right. You have to sign up for it to be eligible to purchase a ticket. You know, they're doing everything possible to keep scalpers away. Right. And she didn't get in the first time. She got in on the extension wow. and she she said, yeah, I paid eight. I think she paid eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a ticket. So she paid, you know, eighteen hundred dollars for two tickets. But she said, it's my husband, husband's birthday. Yeah, there's nothing he wants more. I don't think it's that much money to spend. So, you know, maybe people are quite happy to pay those prices. Yeah. And I think that by the standards of a lot of people who go regularly to big music concerts, I don't think those prices are astronomical. Well, I hope your back is doing okay, and I yeah. appreciate you coming on, and a lot to look forward to in the coming weeks. On May 1st, we will find out the nominations, and maybe we'll reconnect after that. Thank you, David Rooney. Thanks, Scott. And now for my interview with Henry Winkler. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Winkler and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how his severe case of dyslexia, which went undiagnosed for the first 31 years of his life, marred his performance in school, his relationship with his parents, and his self-esteem, how, despite his shaken confidence and reading struggles, he wound up attending Emerson College and the Yale School of Drama and tackling scripts as an aspiring actor, what occurred just two weeks after he moved to Hollywood at the age of 26 that led to him winning Gary Marshall's confidence and, consequently, the role of the Fonz, a leather-clad, motorcycle-riding, thumbs-up-deploying king of cool on Happy Days, a nostalgic 1970s show about the 1950s, how, after more than a decade on Happy Days, he struggled to be seen by others as anyone other than the Fonz, and therefore ventured for a while into directing and producing before returning to acting in projects ranging from the films Scream and The Waterboy to the landmark TV programs Arrested Development and Parks and Recreation, why he was so excited by the opportunity to work on Barry with Bill Hader, and why he feels so equipped to play a slightly twisted and unintentionally hilarious acting teacher, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Winkler, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my God, you know what? I'm just writing an email to my bodyguard. So uh, do you have a bodyguard? I wish I did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm better late than never when we travel the world. I have a bodyguard from New Zealand. Oh my God. I said to him once, I said, do you have a gun? Yeah. He said, not here. I have a serrated knife. I said, okay, I feel good. You're on. You, jo- you got the job. Yeah. yeah. Dennis, his name is Dennis from New Zealand. He travels all over the world and protects people all over the world. Amazing. I, as a short Jew, could never do that job. <laughs> I feel your pain. I'm, I'm telling you. It's amazing. <laughs> well, on, on this podcast, we really try to cover as much as we can of a person's whole life and career. So we always yes. begin at the beginning where we're- Born in Manhattan. You, yes. <laughs> On October 30th, 1945, Right, I came here with my walker, <laughs> and uh, no, I don't remember the time of day. Yes. It's on my birth certificate. <laughs> I had to look it up because I gave it to a guy in New York named John, who is a seer, yeah. you know, uh, one of those, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I actually asked him when I was having trouble getting a job, which was for 10 years, if anything good was going to happen. What did he say? 
he charged me $90. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Right. I got a CD that said, here it is. This was, you paid $90. Here's a CD. He did say, honest, honestly, Scott, he did say I would have multiple jobs. And I, at this moment in 2018, at this very moment yes. as we speak, I do have five jobs. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And you're, uh, you wouldn't have it any other way? I would not have it any other way. I am blessed and I'm grateful. Good. <laughs> no, but the thing that uh, really, I did not know a lot about your, your sort of upbringing and things before yeah. this. Severe. What's the that? The word for my upbringing is severe. Severe, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you seem, certainly you, you, you're currently in a comedy, you've been in a lot of comedy throughout your career. Right. And you seem like a very happy kind of carefree guy. And I yet, am. you had a pretty rough childhood and had, yeah. and maybe the tone of it in some ways might have been even set by what, what where your parents what they kind of lived through, Well, right? you know what? That is absolutely true. My parents escaped Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. which was not a myth, mm-hmm. not fake news. <laughs> I know firsthand that it was very real because I, I, I never had grandparents. I didn't. I had a real aunt, but most of the people, most of the, the Germans in Manhattan that escaped at the same time were like faux family, mm-hmm. you know? I understand that they made tremendous sacrifices, my parents. Mm-hmm. I understand that they also came from a, an authoritarian upbringing. Mm-hmm. But through all of that, I made a deal with myself that when I was a parent, even if I was an idiot mm-hmm. as a human being, right. I would see them for who they are, mm-hmm. or as much as I could possibly see. See your own children. Yes. For who they were. Right. I think what they, they saw, they never, they saw a black hole. With you, yeah. They actually never saw Henry. Were you an only child? I do. I have a sister. Sister. Four years older than I am, mm-hmm. and uh, she lives in New York. And your case, though, your experience was that for reasons that you only learn way later, you were really struggling as a student. And there was not a lot of sympathy. Okay, so that's at an, home. that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I am dyslexic. Mm-hmm. It is a wiring of the brain. Mm-hmm. One out of five children has some sort of learning problem. Mm-hmm. They are not defined by their grades. They're not defined by how they do in school. They are defined by who they are as people walking the earth. Mm-hmm. However, it's hereditary. Is that right? They gave it to me. Do you think they're they... yelling at me? They're they're grounding me. It's them. Do you think it, they themselves actually su- experienced it themselves? No, I, yeah. it must have skipped, skipped a generation, generation yeah. because my father spoke eleven languages and called me stupid in every one of them. <sighs> you know, but I just think it's ironic. Oh, unbelievable! That I was grounded for not doing well in geometry, and yet the reason I didn't do well in geometry was the DNA I came out with. Which at that time there weren't. As your I should child- not be so angry. This late in life, I should give well. Them a you break. don't seem angry, but I, I no. want to. I think it's just. But it, it does piss me off still today. Well, of course, because I mean, I'll I'll just quote back to you a couple things that I came across. I believe they're accurate quotes. You say your parents were quote emotionally destructive close quote. They would sometimes call you quote dumb dog close yes, quote. Yes, hunt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this was just because they. There's no excuse for it, but they were 
doing this as an expression of frustration that they thought you were not trying, you were not succeeding, you were not applying yourself. Well, it was just, yeah. Yeah, so here it is. I took geometry. This is one of my favorite stories. I took geometry starting in, I don't know, ninth grade, mm-hmm. eighth grade. Mm-hmm. I was in summer school from eighth grade until senior year trying to pass geometry. Same course. I passed it with a D minus in 1963. Mm-hmm. Nobody on this earth, no matter where I have traveled, since 1963 until my sitting opposite you today has ever said the word hypotenuse to me. (laughs) So true. What the hell do you need geometry for? (laughs) Because you weren't getting the kind of nurturing that every kid wants and deserves, you found it a little bit. I, I know it meant a lot to you when... A teacher, one particular teacher, sort of. One teacher, 11th grade, Mr. Rock, who I wrote into the novels mm-hmm. of Hank Zipser, right. who I played in Hank Zipser, the television show, which right. we did for the BBC, right, right, right. which is now on Universal Kids, which used to be Sprout, <laughs> if you can even follow I'm that. trying. But anyway, right. it's on TV. I got to play Mr. Rock. That's great. And say to the fictional Hank Zipser what he said to me, that you're great just the way you are. Which is not something you were hearing a lot of. No. When did performing first enter the picture, I imagine, in school? And also, considering what we've been talking about, that that the dyslexia was so debilitating that I think you've said you, if you looked at your own name, it looked not like what it is. Yes. But you know what? The need... Mm -hmm. The dream, the pursuit was bigger Mm -hmm. than all my challenges put together. Mm -hmm. So I never looked at that my challenge could stop me. I saw it embarrassed me. Mm-hmm. It slowed me down a little bit. Mm-hmm. You you figure out how to work around it. You know, people with a learning challenge actually are very inventive, are very resourceful. Because you've got to use everything you've got to work around everything you don't have. Mm-hmm. So why was the dream I performing? I don't know. Had you been a big movie lover or TV mm-hmm. consumer? I was seven. Yeah. I don't know. Till this day, yeah. and I have looked at it, <laughs> I have answered that question since I have been asked it. Mm-hmm. Professionally, non-professionally, I have no idea how it came into my mind how it came into my body. Well, maybe you knew that would be the one way of kind of being someone other than the person who was not always fun to be. Right. Also, it was a way to communicate so that I could use myself Mm -hmm. to show who I was to other people because I always felt invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't feel invisible anymore because my dogs love me. So what were the first actual outlets for wanting to perform in school? There were well, school plays and stuff? I or? wanted to be in a school play. Yeah. I was in very few because my grades were so low that I could not do extracurricular activity. So I yearned, mm-hmm. but I was unrequited mm-hmm. for the longest time. In college, I was kicked out of my acting class. Because of grade uh, release? Well, you know what? I was an idiot. I walked into my sophomore year acting class at Emerson College in Boston, right. which is a great school, Absolutely. I would say. Yeah. 
I'm for me anyway. And I said, I didn't memorize the scene I was going to do. And I said to Dr. Sensenbach, I said, sir, I'm going to try something brand new. I'm going to read and act at the same time. He promptly kicked me out of the class. And then for the next three or four weeks, I had to talk my way back in. But I was kicked out of my major. And you couldn't articulate what the issue was because there wasn't really a term. It was so used. difficult yeah. to memorize. Yeah. I think it might have been a scene from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. That's just not my forte. But what I mean is the problems that you, the difficulties that you were having. Were I did not know until I was 31. So yeah. my whole school experience, I literally thought I was stupid. Mm-hmm. I literally thought. I can't do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was only when my stepson, my our oldest son, mm-hmm. Jed, was diagnosed in the third grade. By which point you were already on happy days. Yes. Yeah. I was 31 years mm-hmm. old and I went, wow, that sounds like me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have something with a name. Mm-hmm. I'm not lazy. I'm not stupid. So is that a relief? It was in the beginning mm-hmm. anger producing. Mm-hmm. Then it was sad because I thought all that arguing, all that grounding, all that feeling horrible was for naught. Mm-hmm. Now it's releasing. Right. And then I can talk about it because there are lots of people. I, I can't tell you who comes up to me and says, oh, my God, you're me. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my somebody Mm -hmm. in my life. And now they don't have to necessarily wonder for 31 years what what the issue is. But to go back for saying, so you get into Emerson's great school. So how I got in, I don't know. Well, because you're I applied to 23 colleges. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Well, so you're there. What was your focus of study there? Were you already thinking? Drama. So you were at that point already saying, I'm going to try to be a professional. Oh, I, I, from the moment I was able to reason. Okay. I'm not kidding. Yeah. That's all I thought about. I would lie awake and I would dream about it. It it would hurt my brain, <laughs> the will to do this. Who was doing the closest thing to what you wanted to be doing that you were watching? At that time yeah. when I was growing up, Spencer Tracy yeah. was one of my faves. Steve McQueen, mm-hmm. one of my faves. So many other people. So you're at Emerson, you're... you're Involved with theatrical productions there. Who was Charlotte Lindgren? Charlotte Lindgren, Dr. Lindgren, was my English teacher. Mm-hmm. She got me. And she is like in her 90s now. Really? And I still communicate with her. That's great. Every novel that my partner Lynn Oliver and I write, I send to her. Sometimes call her on the phone. But this woman got me, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Yeah. She understood. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She just, we got along. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has been part of my life ever since. That's great. So Yale School of Drama is about yes. as terrific a place as you can go if you want to be an actor. I can't believe I got in. 25 uh, actors start. In a class, yeah. 11 finish. Wow. And three were asked into the professional company. I made $173 a week. <laughs> I played every 14-year-old ever written in literature. Why 14 years? Well, because I, I was... You looked, looked very young, young yeah. yeah. 
And this is part of now, eventually, you're saying Yale Rep as well. Right. This was Yale Rep. Now yeah. I'm in the Yale Rep. Yep. That's uh, after I graduated. Right. I was asked into the company. And it was the biggest uh, value of that was just that you... But you know the biggest value? Yeah. It's everything. <laughs> the people I met, the teachers I had, whether I liked them or not, something they said popped up at a point or two in my career. I went, oh, that's what they meant. So I am a big proponent of preparation. Mm -hmm. I always say that if you're dreaming of being an actor, prepare. You prepare in the theater. That's where you learn your craft. You apply it to every single other thing you do in the arts. But the theater first. Prepare. And then your will, your gratitude, pack your suitcase and go either to New York first mm -hmm. and try the theater, any kind of theater, and then come to L.A. Because I think the, a lot of people, particularly or you know, recent much. generations, think first of, the, of what comes with being an actor right. as opposed to that is, that doing so the groundwork. You know? That is it. You know what? And I'll tell you what makes me sad. Mm -hmm. I knew early on I did not want to be a flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. I saw my career. I am a forest ranger, and I'm planting a tree, a baby, a sapling. And I want that tree to grow straight and strong for 75 years. Mm -hmm. I better know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Now, there are wonderful and lovely personalities that come either to New York, Chicago, mm -hmm. or L.A., but a lot of them have no staying power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is why I stress preparation and being truthful with yourself you know either you can do it or right you can't be realistic yeah yeah you know that's funny because i do say that yeah. to bill Hader in our new <laughs> show right. on that's hbo right. right 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 i said you know you really you can't do this <laughs> You are so bad, you should go back right. to your little nook this and uh, sell shoes. When you're in your Jeep, I think, of just eviscerating him in the parking lot. Right. But So what were the series of events that caused you to first move out to L.A. after having this few years? Okay. In so you get there, and it's like no time before you're working. That doesn't happen. No. Okay, so I am nervous. I have no sense of self. This is true. I really, I was a big personality. I was outgoing, but on the inside, I was jello before you put it in the refrigerator. <laughs> I was all over the place, sloshing. Mm -hmm. But somebody said, after I made the Lords of Flatbush, I got $2,000 for a year's work. This is their first film. That was my, my first And it was film. shot in New York New City York on City. the streets. Yeah. No trailer. Freezing cold. We had sound blankets, furniture blankets to keep us warm standing on the street. <laughs> Met Sly Stallone. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable guy. Mm -hmm. Smart, funny, wry. Also had an amazing work ethic. Mm -hmm. You know, he painted his windows black in a walk-up apartment on Lexington Avenue in New York City with his first wife and his bull mastiff. It scared the hell out of me, that dog. <laughs> we became good acquaintances. Mm -hmm. We just clicked. Mm -hmm. 
So you make Lord of Flatbush in oh, right, 73. So because you'd made a movie now, let's see what we can do in L.A. Is that no? The, no. Somebody said, if you want to be known to New York, mm-hmm. you stay here. Mm-hmm. If you want to be known to the country, mm-hmm. go to California. I'm thinking, I'm not sure they're interested in me, but I made commercials. A lot of I them. made a lot of yeah. commercials. I got really good at it. And I had enough money saved to get on a plane and fly to California for one month. Mm-hmm. In the first week, I got four lines on Mary Tyler Moore, <laughs> which was a, a the number one right, sitcom right, at the time. Right. Then two weeks in, I go to audition for Gary Marshall and 12 other human beings in the room. Millie Gussie was the head of casting at Paramount at that time. Tom Miller was one of the executive producers. And Ed Milkus, a bless his soul, was in the room. And many other human beings. But you were there because Gary had seen you on Mary Tyler Moore, right? No. No? I was there because my agent yeah. sent me to try out for a sitcom. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't know if I want to do a sitcom. Mm-hmm. You know, can I just say I learned to be quiet after that. (laughs) And I went there and Mm -hmm. there were so many people in the waiting room waiting to audition. But I'm dead in the water. So I just went for the gold. And what did you know about the what you were gonna be going out for? And what was the description of the character? What did you know about You know what I don't remember that. I just remember one line was Hey Richie, when it comes to girls, let me take uh, let me take the lead. <laughs> so I think I, I think I said that to Ron, and you felt coming I out felt, of that that it had gone. I felt nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I felt nothing. I felt like I I need to go home now, and and I I'm almost at the end of my thousand dollars. Right. Incidentally, can you just share how yes. physically you looked at that time of the audition? I had long hair down to my shoulders. I was wearing a blue shirt and uh, button down. With jeans, I had a gigantic sweat stain <laughs> under both arms. Right. Not the same picture of cool we would later no. get. Right. You know what? Here it is. I was never cool. I acted who I wanted to be, right. never who I was. Now, at 72, I know the absolute definition of cool, and it is being authentically you. Not any accoutrement, not any prop, not any way to look. It is being who you are is magnetic. That is cool. Well, on your 27th birthday, yes. you, right, you find out that you've got this. Yes. But it was only at that point, again, six lines. That's so right. did it feel like a huge deal or just enough to allow Look, you to I stay out? I was making $1,000 a week. Okay. So, so was, to me, it's huge. Yeah. I'm sitting in my apartment on Laurel Avenue right. off of Sunset Boulevard around the corner from Greenblatt's Delicatessen. <laughs> my refrigerator was packed <laughs> with one tuna fish sandwich, <laughs> some ambrosia salad, water, a Coke, and two boxes of almondine wine, red and white, if I had guessed. Right, right, right. Charlie Hayde, who was on Hill Street Blues at the time, Mm -hmm. helped me find the apartment because I was living on his couch with his young daughter, Arcadia, or Brittany, Mm -hmm. his first wife, 
and his golden retriever <laughs> at the Sunset Marquee. I don't know if it's still called the Sunset Marquee. Well, there is a Sunset Marquee. Well, then that's yeah, where it yeah. is, right? In, on Altaloma. Altaloma. Yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. it is. That's yeah. where I was. That's yes. Great. Now I think a lot of rock stars stay there. Yeah, that's exactly and right. And I love yeah. musicians. So yes. maybe I'm going to go and you hang out. You should check it out. They have all kinds of portraits, giant portraits of all the rock stars and people that stay there. Yeah, see? Because yeah. I love Sia. <laughs> really? Met, Is that I right? just met Sia. What, what did you see her in face? A, no, in a, in a grocery store. Now, you know, I have talked about her. I've yeah. tweeted about her. I have sent her because Jack Antonoff mm-hmm. of Bleachers mm-hmm. is a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And so he knows her. <laughs> and so I sent her a video at uh, New Year's time wishing her the happiest New Year. Because you're I that big so a fan. Excited. That's awesome. That's I, awesome. I am a fan. Yeah. I am a fan. So... I walk in this grocery store, and a woman walks up to me, because I've only seen her with a wig. Right, right. And she said, I'm Sia. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you, my heart stopped. I didn't even know what to do, and the only thing I did I could do was hug her. <laughs> and then she's chatting with right. Judd Apatow. Where do you shop? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and Judd Apatow right. and Sia and me have a, like a half an hour conversation I feel like there's a future collaboration oh there. Oh, my would... God. I'm telling you, it was amazing to <laughs> That's me. That's hilarious. So if Sia, if you're listening, I deeply love you. That's fantastic. Yeah. What's, what, what hooked you on her? Was there a song, specific song? Do you know what? I am hooked by human beings who yep. need, mm-hmm. you hear the need mm-hmm. in whatever they do, painting, dancing, acting, music. Mm-hmm. Elton John, the boss, Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. People who need... Oh, Adele. <laughs> wow, you, you're, you know your music. I love, I love... Did you ever hear of the first aid kit? I think they're from Denmark. No. First aid kit. That's the name of a band. Two sisters. Huh. They sing harmony. Beautiful. I'll check it yeah. out. Well, for you, though, you, you very quickly meant a lot to a lot of people. This must have been a weird change for you to suddenly go from being the guy who grew up with a lot of self-doubt and and people questioning whether you had any abilities and all of this to now within a matter of how long of being on happy days you were you were the talk of everybody right but here's the thing what i realized very quickly this all might be true Mm -hmm. but i am no smarter Mm -hmm. i know nothing still about Mm -hmm. geometry (laughs) i'm not taller right so I thought, you know what? You're still who you are. Mm-hmm. They are seeing you and they're enjoying your character, and that's great. But I cannot walk on the water right. they thought I was walking on. Now, here's, I'll tell you mm-hmm. just a, a glimpse. Yeah. I take my children to Santa Fe. Because you were married and had kids already by the time you got on the show? No, I had one child child. by the time I got on. It was on the show. Okay. I was a candle on Jed's fourth birthday cake. My stepson, but now he is in his 40s. Oh, my God. So I was a candle on his cake before I met him. Mm -hmm. Then we had two children together, Stacey and I. Mm -hmm. We had Max. Mm -hmm. And I heard somebody, uh, in my mind, I heard somebody say, get me Max Winkler on the phone. (laughs) It just sounded right. And Max is now a wonderful director. He he has a movie out, Flower, with uh, Zoe Zoe Deutsch Deutsch and Catherine Hahn and Adam Scott. Mm -hmm. Just great. And Zoe, Mm -hmm. who as a little, little girl, played teacher. Mm-hmm. Played school 
when I would open the door to her her room, she was teaching a class. Oh, Dad, you scared me. I was just teaching my class. Right. And she turned out to be an unbelievable teacher. Mm-hmm. My life is great. That sounds like I it. I must say. But I, I, I just am amazed that I think some people get so jarred that they never recover from that first, it's you're suddenly possible. famous. Let me just say, yeah. I understand that too. Yeah. Because people would say to me after 10 years of the Fonz, he is great. Isn't he a wonderful actor? We love him. But he played the Fonz. Because they can't so, see you as something no. else. So I was typecast. And no matter what I thought, I turned down Danny Zucker in the movie I agree because I thought I was going to be typecast. <laughs> what a moron I am. <laughs> yeah, but who knows? Because maybe it would have made things harder. Yeah, my, my joke is that I was offered that. I said, no, I went home and had a juice box. <laughs> John Travolta said, yes, he did it. He went home and bought a plane. <laughs> well... You're both still going strong, so yeah. it works out. Once well, I met John Travolta yeah. at an affair, you know, at, at one of the award shows, mm-hmm. and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, hey, <laughs> you've got guns. Right. I had no idea what he meant. What is the, the muscles? Right, you know, right. that I had muscles. Right, right, right. Know? That's so funny. Well, okay, just a few yeah. final happy days things before sure. we go. But Listen, I love happy days. I am grateful. Right. Gary Marshall, rest his soul, was my Don. Mm-hmm. I kissed his ring. You and know, he, he and Bosley me. were, Tom Bosley were really the mentors of the show for you. Like you, Tom was, was great. He yeah. knew a lot about business, so mm-hmm. he would tell us about insurance. But my, my real mentor mm-hmm. was Gary. Mm-hmm. And Marion Ross. Marion Ross was the woman I would go to, the human being I would go to for wisdom. Mm. There's nobody like her. She's just a strong, straightforward, brilliant, talented woman. So just if you can share the the origin stories of a few things. The leather jacket was not going to fly for a while, right? No, wore cloth until Gary spoke to ABC they said he can wear leather, meaning Fonzie, mm-hmm. when he's in a in a scene with his bike. So Gary never rode another scene without my bike. So that's why I wheeled it into Arnold's. It was in my apartment. It was everywhere. Speaking of the bike, yeah, that was not just your ordinary bike, right? That had some history. Well, no. The first bike yeah. was uh, what they call a hog. Mm-hmm. It was a Harley Davidson, which was unfortunately too big for me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even touch the ground. I felt like I was in a high chair. Right. <laughs> so they got me a Triumph. Mm-hmm. And that Triumph was the same one that Steve McQueen used to jump the fence at the end of The Great Escape. Amazing. Now, he was one of my yeah, action yeah. idols. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw him only one time walking down the street in Beverly Hills. I was going one way, he was going the other. This was after you'd already. Yes, I was the well known. Yeah, and all I did was nod. It m- makes me nuts to this day that I didn't stop and tell him how important he was to me, because mm-hmm. he was a character action man. He was not just action. He was a good actor. And if there was an evolution of cool, it was him. And then James Dean. J- well, James Dean, then him, then you. Yeah. Wow. There's the continuum At there. Least like, those yeah. two. Speaking of the trademark 
gesture and catchphrase. Where do these, you know, we've, maybe you can share the story of. The thumb, <laughs> I believe, was written. Right. A was written. And then I would use it in places where it wasn't written to reduce a lot of dialogue to sound. Same with like, whoa. and Whoa, that. I added. <laughs> okay. Which was my favorite sport at the time. I would go horseback riding in Griffith Park. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, whoa, <laughs> put that in there. Was there something, though, also about that they want you to comb your hair and you weren't going to do that? Like, that was the well, cliche cool. Well, that was cool. the very first show, the pilot. Right. They said the Fonz goes to the mirror and combs his hair in the bathroom at Arnold's. <laughs> and I said to the director, you know, I don't think I want to do that because I made a deal with myself never to comb my hair. Why was that? Well, because every actor had always, you know, Kooky from 77 Sunset Strip had a <laughs> comb. Right. Lend me your comb. Right. Everybody had a comb in their back pocket. So I thought, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and then he said, the director said, excuse me, it's written. <laughs> this is what you're paid for. Right. Go to the mirror, comb your hair. In your first episode on the first show. First episode. Right. So I think, oh my gosh, now I, I can't just say no. I have to be a professional. I go to the mirror. I pull the comb out. I hold it up. I look in the mirror and I go, hey, I don't have to. It's perfect. <laughs> and they kept it in. Right. I was being true to myself. I was going with my instinct. I improv. Right. And they, they let it stand. And that moment defined the character for the next 10 years. Amazing. Last point here is yes. just about September 20th, 77. This is still six years and 164 episodes before Happy Days yeah. ended. We right. have to make this point at the beginning. Right. That's the infamous Jumping the Shark episode. The whole concept seems a little weird because the show, by what, the nature of what I just said, did not jump the shark if it stayed on and did well for no, all those that years. That was 166. We went to 255. Right. We had a lot more show to do. And by the way, you that very season won, and the next one as well, won Golden Globes. You got Emmy nominations for 1976, 1977, 1978. So I think there's if just- If I a, ever yeah. win an Emmy, <laughs> you're going to hear- this is Mr. Winkler's first win. Yeah. He's been nominated for 7,000 Emmys. <laughs> but I mean, the whole concept, though, that I guess maybe you can share why we had a Jumping the Shark episode, but also that it's that it's a nonsense point. Okay. It did not jump the shark. Well, you know what? I, I, I have to say, my father yeah. said, tell Gary Marshall you can water ski. <laughs> Dad, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think it's okay. You know, I ride right. a motorcycle. Right. Tell, tell Gary Marshall you water ski. He would not let it go. I finally, so I could tell him, I said, Gary, I just want you to know I can water ski. Dad, I told him, end of story. All of a sudden, we're in Malibu <laughs> shooting the water skiing episode. Right. Ron is driving the, or steering the, the speedboat. I do all of the water skiing except jumping the shark that they gave to a stuntman. Mm -hmm. But if you watch that episode, I land on the sand, I step out of my skis. I just thought, maybe I can do this. <laughs> if you look 
I am smiling. Part of the smile is Henry going, you did it. <laughs> the other is the Fonz going, hey, I did it. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It is a complete schizophrenic smile. <laughs> but like when you read that yeah. episode and you even when it aired, that. you didn't think anything unusual about, about it, right? No. This is not we, like so we've gone off a, a this, this is no. a weird turn. It was only years and years later that people decided to make that an issue, well, well, right? John Hine from who now does the after show and also has his own show on another network, mm-hmm. you know, with Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He came up with it in his dorm room at Michigan. With his uh, roommate. Just like looking for an example to say, this is the moment when a show is not what it was. And it stuck. And then he made a game (laughs) and a book. (laughs) And it's America. Right. He made a living. Right. But it is just factually not correct. Not correct. No. And you brought up your father. When you now were doing well and the show's gone great and you're now a success, the way other people would look at, say you're a success. Right. Your parents who had given you... A very hard time early on. Did their attitudes towards you change a little bit? Well, now all of a sudden, you mean when I'm a star? Yes. Oh, <laughs> now all of a sudden, there's a co-producers of Henley Winkler. <laughs> I'm not kidding. When I delivered the jacket to the Smithsonian, when I delivered Fonz's jacket mm-hmm. to the Smithsonian, sitting behind me were the short Germans who <laughs> never wanted me to be an actor. So how was that for you? Well, the honest truth... Mm-hmm. I didn't need them to be proud of me when I figured out how to be successful. I needed them to be proud of me when I was confused, Mm -hmm. when I couldn't get it right, when I was having trouble, when I felt badly about myself. Our children, Stacy's and my Mm -hmm. children, no matter what they brought home on a report card was fine Mm -hmm. as long as they actually tried as hard as they could. Mm -hmm. If they didn't try then they would get in trouble. Every one of them is dyslexic. Even, you know, that I had nothing to do with the birth Mm -hmm. of Jed, he's also dyslexic. Mm -hmm. They're all dyslexic. But you know how to deal with it. But you know what? They are great human beings on the earth. And they are directed and uh, family. They have families, except for Max. Max doesn't yet. He has a, a three-legged German shepherd <laughs> that he leaves at our house when he travels. <laughs> who, if you're not in the dog's pack, will corner you for hours on end unless someone comes home and says, no, no, back up, back up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We went, in, we went into a store to buy Max luggage. And we're looking, and and Max lets the leash go, and the dog is walking around or hopping around. And we're looking, and all of a sudden, we see the dog is backing the sales clerk (laughs) into the storeroom, stalking her. We grabbed the leash, thanked her very much, left the store. That was that. (laughs) So after the 11 years, I believe, of Happy Days, you had a point that you've referenced a little earlier where it's like, you don't stay on a show for 11 years or if it's not if you're not doing something right and yet now because you did it right right now you're almost punished for that right so well you know what i mean the the, the thing is that you're known as this character the character is very specific so people will see you as that character i don't know which came first but it sounds like you you were also a little less enthusiastic to 
act again right away after Happy Days. No, I don't mean to to disagree no, with you, but please. I was dying to mm-hmm. do something. But here's the thing: this mm-hmm. this is actually the truth. Mm-hmm. I had a dream. I lived my dream mm-hmm. for ten years. Right. I was known everywhere. Mm-hmm. I took my children, as I said, to Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. We went skiing. We also went to the Christmas celebrations at the Pueblos with Native Americans. The Native American tribe was so lovely to us. All of a sudden, as we're leaving, a grandma comes out of her mud home Mm -hmm. and presents me with warm bread because the Fonz was respectful to a Native American once in 255 episodes. She said, I want to give you this. This is all I've gotten. This is all I have to show you how much we appreciate you. That's amazing. That is the microcosm Mm -hmm. of the way that I'm treated Mm -hmm. on this earth because I I went around going E for 10 years. (laughs) Amazing. It's interesting that it was right after, maybe within a couple of years after Happy Days ended, that you got into directing and producing. My lawyer, Skip Rittenham mm-hmm. III, I met him when he was at another law firm, Skip, and he said to me, I'm leaving, I'm going, will you come with me? I was his first client. He did the deal mm-hmm. for Happy Days. Mm-hmm. He then, in my fourth year, asked me to stay home for a day. I have never missed a day of work in my life. Mm-hmm. Paramount, mm-hmm. ABC, representatives calling me, yelling at me, how dare you? I shook like a leaf falling <laughs> in the fall. He said, you just do what I tell you. He changed my deal mm-hmm. and it was amazing. What he changed was that you would now get to do what? A different compensation package. Mm-hmm. Later on, mm-hmm. toward the end of Happy Days, mm-hmm. part of my compensation was he created a production company. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they gave on-air commitments. I had two. And one of them, we sold, my partner who passed away, John Rich, and I sold... MacGyver mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to ABC was on for seven years. Big show, and now we just finished the second year in the reboot. That's amazing. Being yeah. in the show is run by Peter Lenkoff, and directing. I mean, I guess it seems like that actually also goes back to Gary, right? He it goes the, back to Gary. Yeah, he taught me how to be an executive producer, mm-hmm. to be strong and to be loving, to have a rule, have a structure. Mm-hmm. And be loving so that if an actor tried to stay in their trailer, Mm -hmm. I could just knock on the door and say, cut it out, Mm -hmm. get out of that trailer, or I'm going to put on your costume (laughs) and I will do it. Right. But in terms of specifically the first directing opportunity was... That was Tom Miller and Eddie Milkis, mm-hmm. two of the, 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 the threesome mm-hmm. that uh, created Happy Days, that, that sold it and got mm-hmm. it on, were standing in the street at Paramount outside of Paramount, we, we shot it on stage 19. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's the problem? You look worried. And they said, well, we, we can't find a director for the uh, the last Joni Loves Chachi. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll do it. 
They went okay. I said, wait a minute. I was just joking. <laughs> I was just being right, right. silly. They said, no, no, no. We believe we do it. And that was my first directorial experience. And how does that compare to acting for you? Acting is first. Mm-hmm. Directing is second. Producing is the most difficult for me. So I have a, a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Producing is like holding sand in your arms. You never stop the drip. Directing, you got to get all that sand in one box. And as an actor, I play in the sand. Mm-hmm. That's the way I see oh, it. That's very interesting. So it sounds like it was actually really this uncredited cameo as sort of a unhinged principle in Scream, which is 1996, that in a way created a lot of other things. No, no, it didn't. But I'll tell you what happened. Yeah. I mean, this is a great story. I love this story. Yeah, yeah. So I'm friends with Wes Craven. Somehow I hook up with him and we have sushi every three weeks (laughs) on Ventura Boulevard. And he said, hey, would you like to play? It's a small role. Would you like to be in in my movie Scream? I said, I will do anything for you. And I played the principal. Mm -hmm. We had the best time. We reduced all of my shooting into three or four days up in Santa Rosa, California. And the powers that be, the production company, the head of the production company said, you know, we're not going to put his name on the film in publicity or on the one sheet, on the poster, because it will knock the balance of the movie out. I said, oh, okay, okay, I'm, I'm in the movie. Right. Now they screen the movie to test it mm-hmm. with a test audience. Every time they test the movie and my character comes on screen, I get applause. <laughs> now they call me right. and they say, would you do press? I said, but you wouldn't put my name on right, it. Right. Now you want me to do press. <laughs> That seems so crazy. So, of course, I did. And but was West. that, when I say that it did it lead to other things, maybe it was just a coincidence, but pretty soon after that, you and Sandler hooked up for the first no, time. No, I called Sandler mm-hmm. out of the blue to thank him and tell him I'm very proud to be in his Hanukkah song. <laughs> and he had eight tracks of Happy Days. Right. And he invited me to his house. They used to play basketball. You know, he's a, he was a big athlete mm-hmm. at that time. I don't, maybe he still is, but, and so Brad Pitt was there and Jim Carrey was there. I mean, big stars were there playing basketball. I couldn't shoot a ball for all the (laughs) tea in China. And then I'm doing the worst movie Mm -hmm. ever made by human beings with Kiefer Sutherland (laughs) called Control Tower. I'm telling you the worst movie (laughs) The DVD, when they put the movie and transferred it onto the DVD, the actual DVD melted. (laughs) It was so bad. It was embarrassed. Okay. Oh, my God. One day, there was no director, and Kiefer Sutherland took over. He was magnificent. Mm -hmm. He was a great director. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I watched every episode of 24 and Designated Survivor. I, I love television. I watch a lot of television. But anyway. I'm on the set. I get a call from my agent, which was like so different anyway, because they never called me. (laughs) And he said, look, uh, they want you to play the coach in Waterboy. I said, okay. They said, well, they they can't afford you. I said, they don't know me. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, they could pay me in lollipops. Right, right, right. I'm fine. <laughs> you know, a chocolate lollipop. Right. I'm in. A little Turkish right. taffy in the middle. I'm, I'm in. Sizzle, yeah. <laughs> I get to do it. And then they say, they give me the, the costume. I try out the costume and they, it's a pork pie hat. And I said, you know, I'm feeling that it should be a, a ball cap. I said, no, Adam wants you to wear the pork pie. I said, but I really feel strongly about this. And they said, no, Adam wants you to wear the pork pie. <laughs> I went, I get it. And there the, the coach was born. Right. It was not just that. It was also Click, Little Nicky, right? Cameo sort of. You don't mess with the Zohan. Right. <laughs> Hopefully more. And so. then the last one he did on Over uh, Netflix. Netflix. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Where he played the it's just played not, his it's manager. It's funny because, you know, it just seems like an interesting, odd you couple. You know, first of all, he's an amazing family man. Mm -hmm. And he loved and loves his mom and mm -hmm. loved his dad who passed away. Mm -hmm. I think the just after his wedding to beautiful Jackie. And in Click, I got to play his father. And I thought this might be one of the great compliments of my life that this guy, because I really believe that Adam Sandler is brilliant. Mm -hmm. I worked with Gary Marshall, mm -hmm. Adam Sandler, Mitch Hurwitz, and now the combo of Bill Hader and Alec Berg, Berg. Yeah, yeah. together they make a bubble of genius. Mm -hmm. No joke, these two men are, but I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. But Adam is in charge of every detail. Everything, yeah. Of what he produces, of what he acts in, what he directs, what he, but he really doesn't direct, he, but he does it all from the video village. Right. What's been very interesting is that for almost this whole 21st century, you have done a lot of TV and been a part of a lot of the, just turns out to be the best TV comedy series. That's amazing. Of, and we, I just wonder if we can just, as sure. we make our way here to Barry, sure. just the... Somebody told me recently I have been on the air consistently for 43 years. Without a year or well, something? Well, there were eight years in there but, when I couldn't get hired. But very few people would have had this regularity yeah Can, this is why yeah. gratitude because gratitude you know you keep i take my pick and my axe mm -hmm. to work every day and i mine the system because i do not want to be a flash in the pan nor do i want to stop until i'm ready right and i am loving my life. No, you can see just the, the nature of the work. It comes through. So the first of these that you just referenced a second ago, Arrested Development. The, went actually, in I, for one episode. What's that? I went in for one episode. That's all you thought originally. We just finished the last season <laughs> that will be on Midsummer. I'm so glad. So you're going to be, I didn't think you'd have time to be part no, of it. No, they allowed me, uh, HBO allowed me to do oh, that's three, great. three that's episodes. Great. And this is, ironically, Barry. Barry. Barry Zuckerhorn. Zucker <laughs> who, yes. for anyone who needs a, a slight reminder, he wears chiffon underwear, <laughs> and he's just the most incompetent lawyer, right? The ever, but, ever, <laughs> ever. He but, has no time right. to read your brief. Right. He doesn't know what your case is. He's got a social life, and he's got constant itches everywhere <laughs> because he's picked up stuff from, 
you know, rest stops. <laughs> and I, I don't know what it is. Well, so, by the way, isn't it you and Ron Howard? Yes. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. All these years later. But I never see him. Never. Yeah. No, right, I just, right, right. I, I just hear him. Another one, and this was, I believe, just a, a one-day shot that ended up being a very sad day, September 11th, 2003, Eight Simple Rules. I was rehearsing with John, mm -hmm. who was a very good friend of mine. John Ritter, yeah. I met him at the 25th anniversary for ABC. I was sitting at a table with my wife, you know, at one of those gala dinners for the owners of stations all over the country, mm -hmm. and he was sitting behind me. And I moved my chair back and bumped into him, turned around, and said, oh, I'm so sorry. And then I went, oh, <laughs> hey, I've just seen the ads for your new show. And just the way you fall out of frame, I know you're going to be great. <laughs> just the, the, the tone of your fall. <laughs> and we became really good friends, Ron and his wife, John and his first wife, and uh, Stacy and I went out to dinner on Monday nights. We were called the Monday Night Marauders. <laughs> I did a television movie with him. I did animation with him. I did Broadway with him. Neil Simon. The dinner party, Neil Simon, yeah. yeah, we ran for nine months together on Broadway. Amazing. Here's a great yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, this for me, it's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the spring, in the fall, they do Broadway Cares yeah. for AIDS. And you raise money from the stage. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been to a Broadway play, there is a month where the actors come out and say, please, there are buckets in the front when you're leaving. Please drop money in. John and I ran the auction. <laughs> <laughs> and we would sell the handkerchief that was in my tuxedo, and they could come backstage. We sold it for $12,000 oh a night. We beat Reba McIntyre, who was <laughs> up the street in Annie Get Your Gun. Right. We beat her by $75. <laughs> we, we won right. the spring Broadway Cares. I'm telling you, it was like we won the Academy Award. <laughs> And he was, rest his soul, John Ritter could tell you the same joke at 9 in the morning, 12 in the afternoon, 5, and 9 at night. And it was funny every single time. Same joke. <laughs> and so it was just a sad twist of fate that you happened to be doing your day that you were going to be doing a, a guest spot. I was, yes, I, we were rehearsing. He came to me. He said you know what, I've got to get some water. I just am sweating. And I said, okay, you do that, and I'm going to go memorize my lines so I don't stink up the room. <laughs> and I never saw him again. He went to the hospital. They called me at 11 o'clock at night. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh. And they said, we lost John. And I, I couldn't hear the sentence I kept on saying, what, what, what did you just say? What did you, what? It is, it's inconceivable that this man of talent could be gone. <gasps> oh, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, that, yeah, yeah. What a guy. Intellect, funny, warm, inclusive, moody. Oh, my God. Well, that was oh, 2000. Three. Yeah. After that, the last of these that I'll mention pre-Barry is Parks and Recreation. Parks you did and Rec. A bunch I went of in, of that. I yeah. went in for, I think, one 
episode to play uh, to play the the dad, Doctor Doctor uh, Saperstein. Yes. <laughs> and I did three years. I kept going back to that wonderful cast. But again, it's like it's unbelievable. These are Arrest Development, Parks and Rec, in particular. These are already on along with Happy Days on most of the lists of any authoritative, you know, yeah. great comedy yeah, shows. I, of- I'm, I'm blessed. I really am. I am blessed. I had a dream. And then look at my dream. Which leads us into Barry. This is Barry. <laughs> how did you first hear about the show? And when, I wonder just as a, as a, a woman pitch. by the name of Iris Bernstein right. called me and said she was an, a, an agent at Paradigm. And I was with Paradigm. I am there as a client. I'm saying that so that Paradigm knows that I'm part of their organization. But anyway, Iris Bernstein called me and said, they want you to come in. And I said, I'm going to stop you right there. If Dustin Hoffman is on the list, I am not going. Why would that be? Because they're going to go with us. They're going to go with a movie star. They're going to go with a an Oscar winner. I said, so it should, no, he's not on the list. It's a short list. Okay. Then she said, and here it is, you have to audition. I said, well, I, I understand that. It's part of my job. But what were you told you would even be auditioning for? What did you know? An acting teacher. I said, oh, I can do that. On a show that was... Darkly comedic or nothing? Didn't know. All you knew is you're going in. Bill Hader. I heard Bill Hader. I wasn't sure who Alec Berg was at that time. Right. Then I found out who he is. And then, you know, Seinfeld, Mm -hmm. Curb Your Enthusiasm, Silicon Valley, just one of the great writers in television. Bill Hader, acting teacher, I can do this. (laughs) Now they send me the sides. It's written... I've said this before, but I'm telling you, as you read the script, mm-hmm. you are reading cashmere, not like a cotton blend, not like most of the scripts that come across and you think, this is being made. Oh, okay. For a lot of years, I did not have an audition for a pilot. Because... We love him, but he was the yes. That great sentence. <laughs> So now they're asking, okay, this is good. My son, Max, who just, you know, directed this movie, Flower, Mm -hmm. he's at the house. He directs me in my audition, in my house. Because you're prepping with him. I'm prepping with Max. Max is directing me. Gotcha. And he's strict. (laughs) And I'm going, okay, Max, that's good. No, let's do it again. Max, I got, there's an exclamation point. You can slow down here. Don't ad lib, Dad. Respect the writer. But Max, that's who I am. Don't ad lib, Dad. Right. Respect the writer. Okay, Max. Okay. We go over it. I go in the next day. Out of the corner of my eye, I see I've made Bill Hader laugh. I oh that. Yeah. my God. Okay. I'm reading with Sherry Thomas, the casting agent. 
Was there a specific scene you were doing? Do you remember what I, it was? I don't remember. Yeah. All, yes, it was the audition scene w- that I did then with Sarah Goldberg, <laughs> who plays the young actress. Yeah, the in it. actress. She is so good. But then everybody is good. I just saw Kirby, who is the Anglo-African actress, right, right. who you know had like four lines right. so far in three episodes. I just saw her on Killing Eve with Sandra Oh on BBC America. Mm-hmm. She's killing it. Yeah. But oh your scene God. that you're referring to that you had to audition is a laugh out loud scene. You just eviscerate this person. I eviscerate her and then but, go. We, what I did was, it was originally, I said, you have no business. You're stinking up my stage. She starts crying. And I go, action. <laughs> just do the scene. You know? Oh, my but, God. Well, and so, you know, the question that's obviously comes up for people is, is your character based on someone that is sort of it's famously based on someone they went and they saw an acting class and a lot of what they wrote they actually saw happen <laughs> it happened to me in my in acting experience in my school yeah I was told by one teacher, she brought me up after class. Now, this is in graduate school. Now, do you remember, I am am a wobbly piece of nothing at this moment. (laughs) I I have a dream. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm trying to learn my craft. And she said, you're trying to undermine my class. I said, I don't even have an opinion about myself. <laughs> I don't even know who I am. I don't even know what undermining your class right, means. Right, right. And I'm thinking, well, they're going to kick me out. Right. Silla Adler, great. You studied but, with her after no, Yale? No, she was at Yale. She was teaching Yale? Oh, yes. That wasn't who said you're undermining No, that was a, yeah. a woman named Norma. Right. <laughs> this is Stella. Stella is the grand dam of theater. Yeah, yeah. Helen Hayes, Stella Adler, mm-hmm. really uh, studied with Stanislavski. Right. You know, Luther Adler was her husband. She woke him up in the middle of the night and said, stop sleeping like an important person. <laughs> So she had been like that. She had been domineering as well. Oh my God! Right. And um, Strasberg uh, is supposedly the ultimate of just uh, in the, the way that your character would just make somebody feel like nothing. The ultimate. Yeah. He was the ultimate acting teacher in America. Right. But Stella had her own school, you know, named after her. But she had an exercise. Imagine a garden. Lead us through it. I stood up. I said, "Here are the." She said, "Sit." down i said wait a minute my variegated tulip she said you see nothing (laughs) sit down and shut up wait so you had some good stuff to draw from for this is there a key though to there's you know a thin line between being funny and just coming across as a jerk or whatever i mean i guess the writing does a lot of you know we'll navigate that a a lot that's true but it's just hilarious. I think also the just some of the delivery is, you know, you can have a great line, but deliver it poorly. You, you've you killed the in the best way some of these. I, I love when he comes in after somebody suddenly has passed away oh, yeah. and take the rest of the day off. But this will count as yes. a full class. <laughs> Absolutely. You pay full boat. Right. Right. No, no, no. Because my the, the character, right. I have to say, this is from an ego right. point of view, yeah. one of the greatest pieces of advertisement I have oh, ever been associated amazing. with is the bus bench. 
which advertises my acting class. And if you call the number, Mm -hmm. I talk to you. (laughs) I I thought it was just brilliant on HBO's part. It really is. But Bill directed the first two. He watched every moment of every scene. Alec directed two. They co-write, co-produce, and then, of course, Bill stars. And so you're really under great leadership because any actor who tells you they don't need a good director is lying. Mm -hmm. You need a third eye. Do you see anything of yourself in Bill Hader? This is a guy who's come up, you know. I never thought of that. I just wonder. I never thought of that. I only concentrate on making sure that I walk right up to the line of absurdity and try not to step (laughs) over it. But Bill is a wonderful acting partner. We did a scene in the third episode, Mm -hmm. which has aired already. Yep, watched it last night. Which came from the story about Stella Adler that I told them. We're pushing our carts down the aisle in a supermarket. And they wrote that directly from my mishap with Stella. (laughs) That's great. And a third of it, or a little less, is ad-libbed. And Bill just goes with you. He just is like a a wonderful acting partner. Do you the, know? There was a moment in last night's the third episode where it did, it looked like maybe I'm imagining it, but they left in something where you could see he's almost about to oh, break I, up I, laughing I, yeah. because at something you were doing. Well, I can't. you know what he, he likes to do? Right. He mouths the words with you because he's written them. Right. He knows it. So right. he's directing and acting at the same time. And you have to right. say, Bill. <laughs> right. Well, th- these are the last two things. They are rebooting everything these days. Yeah. We've got... Will and Grace, Roseanne, Murphy Brown's coming along with a whole bunch yes. of others. Oh, and Magnum P.I., the, Magnum the, P.I. The, the same producer who has made MacGyver hit a second time. Peter right. Lenkoff is doing Magnum P.I. for CBS. So how would you, Henry Winkler, feel if somebody decided to reboot Happy Days? I would feel uh, wonderful. You, you don't think it's sacrilegious to touch? I do not yeah. think it is sacrilegious. I think that Will and Grace, mm-hmm. after, what, 20 years or something, is so funny. Those people, I mean, Sean Hayes is touched by God. Right. Megan, when I worked with her on Children's Hospital, I would forget what I was going to say next <laughs> because she was so funny that you would lose your concentration. Roseanne? is funny. Mm -hmm. It's laugh out loud funny. Mm -hmm. They've modernized it. You know, this whole thing about Trump, one person in the family is a Republican, the other person in the family, one of the great actresses in America, uh, Lori Medcalf, is a Democrat. Then all of a sudden the president takes credit for that, (laughs) you know? Well, the last question is, you probably have not gone a day since 1970. Four without somebody giving you an A or a That's right. thumbs or up asking me or to do it. Yeah. asking you to do it or whatever. Yeah. Or going, Fonz, good to see you. <laughs> and so I guess just the question is, there, there are people who I, we don't have to name here, but who have in their own way had an iconic character and after a certain amount of time almost grow to hate it and, and resent being asked to okay. do things like that. How have you, because you do have a, a wonderful reputation and we see through this podcast anyone listening will see that it's it's true that just a 
a kind of lovely attitude about it all. But how do you manage to treat each day as in that way, as opposed to an annoyance or a bother or whatever? It's, it would be understandable if you did. How do I do that? I don't even think of it in that way. I think, oh, isn't that great? Because if they don't watch, I have no job. That's number one. Number two, they talk to me with such warmth. They really do. I'm going up this weekend to do a Comic-Con in Portland. People wait online to say hello. It's amazing. And look what else I get to do. They can call me anything they want. Look at the life I've got, you know, and five grandchildren. Mm -hmm. Who I was watching Happy Days with my six-year-old grandson. We're sitting on the couch. He's looking at the screen. He looks at me. He's looking at the screen. He looks at me. Then he says, Papa, your hair is different. Could it be that it's almost completely white? I, uh, you're very, very observant. Right, right. Mind your own business. But he wears a Fonz t-shirt. Come on, he's got great sartorial taste. My life is great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks Congratulations. For it's really exciting to have another one to add to this list of, of and amazing things. And this one things. is amazing. It is. Barry is amazing. And here's the thing. Yep. I will say this is the last thing I'll say. Sure. It's not hyperbole. You know, actors say, oh, this is great, and the right. cast is great, and the writing is great. You can't oversell. This is like when I tried to explain to people Hamilton. You can't oversell Hamilton. No matter what you say, Hamilton is bigger Mm -hmm. than any words that have come out of your mouth. True. I walked up to uh, Lynn, the creator and the the original Mm -hmm. Hamilton, and I touched his forehead. And I went, oh, my God, this came out of you. (laughs) He went couplet my couplet. Yeah. I touched my forehead and I said, you see this? <laughs> couplet less. <laughs> There's not a couplet in here. <laughs> but with Barry, yeah. no matter what I say, you watch it, I think you will have a good time. I agree. Thank you again. Really appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.